You take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 39. Psalm 39. For me as a young person, it was not something I really thought about that much was the death of individuals that I knew. Uh, most of my grandparents were gone before I was uh, born, so I didn't know them and, and had no experience of loss uh, in the sense of directly uh, being impacted by them. But I can remember a, a one thing that began to get me to think about the, the frailty of life. As an elementary school, we had a young man that came into our class, and um, right away we recognized that there was something different about him. His name was Mark Moore. Mark Moore had a disease that's still around today, but they've got some better ways to try and treat this, but he had a disease known as hemophilia. This is when an individual has a blood that doesn't clot, so uh, merely bumping into something could cause bruising that wouldn't stop and uh, could uh, lead to death. And so we were, as a class, an elementary class, just kind of told, this is what he has. Don't try to bump into him and the like, and don't let him get cut. And I can remember a couple of times during the school year, he wasn't in school because of the fact that something had happened. Uh, they were trying to get his blood to, to stop uh, bleeding. He had done something and the like. Uh, he never played at recess uh, just because of the fact you don't want him to get bumped or scrape a knee or the like. And, and he was only with us for a year, but it was, it was to me as a young person shocking that a young person could be that close to death. I mean, that was just not a, a concept that had really been a part of my life that life can be short i remember a little bit a few years later i was in college and in college we had uh soccer that we played on the campus there between different individuals and we had uh different groups there that we were part of society for for the guys there and and we would play soccer against uh, other different societies on campus and the like and there was uh, one year that I actually played soccer for the, uh, the team that was there, and we had three guys in the front line that were pretty incredible soccer players. In fact, I'd played soccer for a number of years and never seen anybody do what these three guys could do. We had a very tall guy in the center of the field who had legs the size of tree trunks, and uh, he is one of the few people I've ever seen be able to kick a ball pretty much on a straight line uh, from the center circle all the way to the goal. You know, that, that, that was something he could do, and it was just like, wow, I don't want to be in front of that. The two people on the right and left uh, wing up front uh, were individuals that were really short, but it was like watching cartoons. You see the cartoons and the legs move really fast. Those uh, two guys up front uh, were known for being very, very speedy and very fast. They could do things uh, when balls would come in that, you know, you would, you know, hurt yourself trying to do if you tried it, but they could do it. I remember one time that uh, we were playing before the championship game at the 
school there and uh, we were practicing and I was on defense and they said, okay, we're going to practice doing kicks from different portions of the field, special kicks that the ball has stopped and the the offense can decide how they're going to kick it, who's going to kick it, and you can put a wall in front of them. And I was in the wall. That was my job, that practice, was to run around and stand in that wall. And uh, so the whistle would blow, we would stand there, they would line up the kick. And this uh, one wing by the name of Steve Pagliuca did thing with a soccer ball that I never want to see coming at me again. Because what he was able to do was normally when you kick a soccer ball, it curves. It's got, it's got a bend to it of some kind. He kicked it and there was no bend on it. In fact, it fluttered. It, it, it didn't go up or down. It just fluttered and you didn't know what direction it was going. And we're standing in the wall, and he's kicking it as hard as he can. And we, you know, in practice are thinking, we've got a championship game the next day. We're not going to die now. Uh, and so we would die for the ground, and he's just like, you know, come on, stand in the wall. And it's just like, you know, we're not going to die. We'll die tomorrow. Uh, we're not giving up our life this way. But I've never been in a wall where I've seen a ball do that, flutter as it comes in because he was kicking it so hard and in a certain way that it would just kind of do this number as it went towards the goal. He was known on campus as being one of the best soccer players ever to be on campus there and I kind of lost track of Steve uh, after school but I had heard that he had gotten married and I thought well that's great. I didn't know that he had been dating anybody really seriously when we were in college and then I found out that he had a child and uh, that was great, but it was about two years later that I received information uh, from somebody. They said, did you hear about Steve? And I said, no, what's wrong with Steve? He said, well, he had colon cancer and died. I mean, if I was to talk about someone who was in the prime of physical fitness and the like uh, that I had been with as a uh, young, uh, well, 20-something I would have put him in that category as being an athlete and healthy and strong and then to find out that he was gone and it was due to colon cancer. And you're thinking that's not what young people get. That's what really, really old people get. That was kind of my thinking. See, one of the things that we have to grasp in life is that people can die young and they can die old. And really, when we say people die old, that's really kind of a a falsehood because the fact is, is we were created to live forever. That's what God created man and woman originally in the garden to be able to do. But as we go through life, we begin to even comprehend in our own life the shortness of life. That life is shorter than what we think it is. And the older we get, we're going, where did time go? And there are events and things in our life that get us to contemplate how short our life is. And this passage in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 39, written by David, seems to continue the theme that we had last week. Last week we had in Psalm 38 that David was recognizing the fact that he had sinned and that he was sick because of his sin. God had brought sickness along to make this sin seem very large to loom before his eyes and he is looking for forgiveness of sins. This psalm has sickness in it. 
it's got sin in it also. It seems to be a, a situation that's somewhat related to the previous psalm. That theme is there again. Sickness is a part of it. Need for forgiveness of sin. But what we're going to find in this psalm is the attitude of a believer that is seeing the shortness of life in some ways is frustrated by this. How do they respond to this? Especially when uh, they're undergoing the sickness themselves that they think this may be it. How does a person respond to that? And for us, as we look at this, the theme would be the believer is unable to keep silent with God when faced with the shortness of life. Okay, you can't keep silent with God when faced with the shortness of life. You see from the title that it says to the chief musician, even unto Jeduthun. You say, who's that? Well, he was one of the three senior music leaders. There were uh, individuals in David's time and Solomon's time. One was by the name of Asaph. One was by the name of Heman. And uh, you have Jeduthun. And so this is written for the chief musician. His songs dedicated to him, but obviously he's going to have his choirs sing this as part of the temple worship. And so this was a, a song that was meant to be something that all people would hear. That they would uh, hear this as they came into the temple for different uh, festivals and, and worship. That this would be part of the regular uh, singing of the choirs that were there made up of the priests uh, and the Levites that were in uh, the temple. So that's uh, what that title means. So the chief musician, even to Jedithan, it's, it's written for this individual. I want us to read through it now that uh, we've had that explanation. Verse 1, it says this, I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I, I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me while uh, I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spake with my tongue, Lord, make me to know mine end, and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is nothing as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. And then that word selah, you go, what does that mean? It just means to, in, in the way that the, the psalm goes, a, a section of rest. Just think for a second what you've just read. Then verse 6 goes on, Surely every man walketh in vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who will gather them. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in Thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth because Thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. And right after a statement about vanity, once again, 
Selah. Verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee, and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. O spare me, that I may recover strength before I go hence, and be no more. What you find the psalmist doing at the beginning, when he is beginning to realize there may be shortness of life for him, is that there is a struggle or an attempt to keep silent. You see this uh, in verses 1 through 3. He wants to say certain things, but he realizes it's probably not a good thing to say. There's different reasons of why you find in this section that he is keeping silent. I mean, you find in verse number one, he has the wicked that's before him, and he doesn't want to give uh, the wicked the reason to rejoice that he is suffering. Remember in the last psalm we looked at, uh, David said, my friends are far off and my foes are near, and it's like they're cheering on the fact that I'm in misery. And so in one way, David may have been just kind of penting up his feelings about what's going on because here the wicked are there and he doesn't want to give them reason to rejoice, to be happy that he's suffering. That could be one reason for it, but we do find later on that as you look at verse number 9, where David says, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth because thou didst it. See, what David is indicating the fact is that he's really frustrated by the fact that he is sick, that there's shortness of time. And for him, he realized this, that if he was to say how he felt, to really express what he wanted to say, that it probably would not be good. It would come out as accusations against God. And you say, okay, this is, uh, as you think through, we've been looking at a man who was uh, sick. A man by the name of Job. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was not being uh, sick because of the fact that he had sinned. But his problem was is that he, when he starts talking, what did he do? When going through this study, he starts accusing God of some things. At least the psalmist here, as he's describing what's going on, he did want to say certain things, but he didn't. A, to keep the wicked from rejoicing, but B, in the sense that he knows that God has allowed this, and he's just kind of holding what he's going to say, because he knows if he says something, he sh or he might say, say something, he shouldn't say. But what he is, uh, has pent up in him, as you look at this, is that he's taking heed to his, way, his ways. He's watching his mouth as a bridle. You'd put that on a horse to, to keep it from doing things it shouldn't. He's kind of done this with his mouth. He's quieted himself. But verse 2, it says, I was dumb with silence. And, and that word silence is an unusual word when it comes to uh, the believer's life. Because when you read the Psalms and you read throughout the Psalms, the Psalms are noisy. 
You go, what do you mean they're noisy? When you praise God and when you thank God, it's noisy. It's loud. And the expected thing for a believer, if they know their God and they're following their God, is that they're going to express this and not be ashamed to express what God has done, who he is, what he's like. And so when he is here, he's saying, I was dumb with silence. Well, here's the, the, the problem. He's not, if he's silent, he's not praising God like he should. He's quieted what he should be doing uh, as a follower of God. And he has, well, silenced himself. He's muzzled himself. He held his peace, even from good. He didn't say the good things that he should have said. Because he said, if I open my mouth and say anything, it's not going to come out good. You see verse 3, the, the pent-up energy that's there as he's suffering and realizing that time is short and he's not really excited about this. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. You can just see the, the temperature rising and what he would like to say and this energy that's there. You can't keep that pent-up for a long period of time. So what you suddenly see is in verse number three, an explosion to prayer, to talk to God. Okay, that's what prayer is. A, prayer is not some sort of fancy communication. Prayer is communication with God. And he can't keep quiet anymore. And he goes to the one that he knows is the answer to all of this, is the one that's doing these things. And he goes, I have to at least talk to him. I've got to do this. I, I'm trying to keep silent in my, my, my life and not say anything that would be offensive uh, to man or to God, but I have to talk to God. And so you have this explosion of prayer, uh, like a cap on a geyser. A muzzle can work only until the pressure from inside becomes overwhelming. You can only hold pressure in for so long until uh, the cap comes off. When I think of that, I, I think of a trip that we took one time with seniors. And one of the stops that we made, we went to a baseball game. I think it was a Cincinnati Reds baseball game. And we, we got a really, really wonderful set of seats way out in right field. You go, why? Because it was cheap. Uh, but we went out there and we were at that game. And it wasn't one of the most spectacular games. And it wasn't that there were a whole lot of fans there. But we were there and it was different for the kids to be at. And... I can remember the group that we had. We had three boys in that group and three girls in that group, and they kept each other uh, really antagonizing one another throughout that trip and doing things and the like. But I can remember as we sat there, one of the uh, individuals that was there, a young man, uh, had a water bottle. They had gotten a couple of water bottles and they're in the stadium and paid whatever, you know, $20 for a water bottle that they are at a baseball game. And they'd gotten done drinking it, and they didn't have anything uh, else to do. So what they did is they had the cap screwed on, and what they were doing is that they were twisting the bottle. And they were being noisy. I mean, that's, you know, to, to, to crank that around is being a little bit noisy. And I can remember I uh, said something to them, you know, guys, don't do that. My wife's like, don't worry, they're not bothering anybody. Look at, you know, look at the non-crowd around us. And uh, I was like, okay, I'll just not say anything else. But 
What I understood was this, is that if you twist it far enough, the pressure builds up to the point where all you have to do is barely touch the cap and the cap just flies off. So, sure enough, as we're sitting there, all of a sudden there was an explosion of sound and this cap goes flying about 10 rows in front of us and hits the only people in front of us. And it was really shocking how much pressure could be built up in a little bottle like that to be able to get the cap that way. Of course, the people, when they got hit, were looking around for individuals that had done this, and we were all innocent-faced uh, looking at the game as it went on, not knowing what had happened there. But the fact is, is the pressure had built up enough to be able to launch a cap 10 rows. That's kind of what we have here. The pressure has been building up and the tension is there and all of a sudden the cap comes off and David starts talking to God. And what he does in verses 4 through 7 is that he attempts to grapple with the shortness of life. He himself trying to come to grips with this as a human being that there is a shortness to life. What you see in verse number four is that he acknowledges right from the start that he's near his end. I mean, Lord, make me to know my end, the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. He recognizes he's, he's, he's not as strong as he was before, that this illness has taken away the energy that he had. Uh, he's weakened to a state where he's just simply saying, I could break at any time completely. And what he's attempting to do is to see things as God sees them. You know, he's going, I know God did this, but I'm seeing it from my perspective. There's a shortness to life going on here. I could end at any time. The psalmist here is uh, just wanting to know an answer. He's willing, uh, is asking for a willingness to live with the facts, for the grace to acknowledge and accept the nature of human life. I mean, he does make this statement that he knows that his measure of days is short. Understand this, people didn't live as long back then. You know, when they talked about three score and 10, 80 years, that was, I mean, supremely old. And uh, you, you would talk through this and uh, 70 years and 80 years uh, in the scriptures, you would read through that. That was really, 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 really old. I mean, if a person lived that long, they were blessed in life. Typically life back then, you were 30, 40, 50. And if you got that long in that time frame, you lived a long time. For some of you, you're going, ooh, wow, I'm, I'm way past that point. But David's recognizing this. He's going, I, you know, it, it, the, the life is short. And he goes, it's, it's getting shorter here as I see this. It's shorter than what it should be. In fact, the way he describes his life, look at verse 5. It's not a measurement we're used to. He says this, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth. Realize that back in the time of David, they didn't have rulers and measuring sticks. They usually did things by uh, measurements that were generic. Handbreadths or cubits. You go, it's a cubit. It's from the tip of the finger to the end of the, the arm. Uh, was a general way that you would figure out the, the length of something. And the handbreadth was typically the smallest measurement that you would have. You would see things described by hand breadth, but it was the shortest of measurements. 
So what David is saying is, my life's not even measured by, you know, a cubit. My life's just measured by these little hand breaths, uh, that are there. It's not very long for me. My age is nothing before thee. And he says this, verily, every man at his best is altogether vanity. That's that word vanity that you see in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanities, uh, saith the preacher. You go, what does he mean by that? Uh, life is this, if you're just merely living for here and now, you begin to realize how empty it is. It's like a wind, there's nothing to it. It's not enough uh, substance to it. There's not enough uh, as a part of it. It's insufficient. And really, that view of vanity is just simply thinking this way, that everything is earthbound. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's talking about life under the sun. It's talking about everything here. So if you look at everything here and the working out of it, you suddenly realize there's a lot of things that I haven't accomplished, I haven't done, a lot of things I can't do. And then what I do accomplish isn't really all that impressive. And if you just look at life being, in this case, very short, you're just going, it's empty. I mean, what, what value is there to life? I mean, Ecclesiastes 2.18, uh, or excuse me, as you read through the Ecclesiastes, uh, you find uh, this uh, idea that the irony of life, I mean, verse 6 in Psalm 39 says this, surely every man walketh in vain show, emptiness, surely they are disquieted in vain, he heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. What he's just simply saying, you can have this individual who's got all sorts of wealth and he gathers everything and then he's gone. He didn't get to enjoy it. Didn't get to experience uh, what he could have done with that. I mean, this is the statement of Ecclesiastes uh, when Solomon is uh, giving wisdom on the shortness of life and the irony and the vanity of life. He said this, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. I mean, Solomon makes a statement. I'm going to gather all these riches and understand for Solomon when he's making that statement, he's the richest man in the world. The wealth of the nations is coming to him. Kings and queens are coming and bringing uh, their uh, goods here. They get to the point that they've got so much gold, they're trying to figure out what to do with the extra gold. You know, let's just make some random shields. And these I mean, you read what's going on during Solomon's time. But he makes the statement and Solomon's his thing. He goes, I'm going to die and I'm no longer going to be responsible for this. Someone else is going to take this. And he goes, I'm not going to live long enough to, to, to really do the things that I ought to do with this stuff that I've gathered. David is sitting here recognizing this fact that life is short and I'm doing different things and I'm going to die and not take care of everything and leave it to somebody else. And that's a frustration. I don't have enough time. My life's too short. I mean, the question in verse number seven I almost feel like it should have a selah after it. But David asked this question, and now, Lord, what wait I for? 
I mean, what, what hope have I got? Do, do I have any extra time? Is it really worth it for me to have that time? I mean, if I look at life, it's short. It's shorter than I want it to be. I don't accomplish everything I want. Uh, is there any value in living life out? And what you find in, in verse uh, number 7 and verse number 8 uh, and following is that there's a praise or a prayer for grace to live life well. What life we have. Because the answer to that question in verse 7, he gives the answer. Life by living life by itself just for life is empty. But, verse 7 end, my hope is in thee. I'm not just merely living life because I have to accomplish something and I need to do certain things and I need to live this long. No, I live life with an understanding that my hope is not in myself, in my time, in my capabilities. My hope and confidence is in you, God. Thus, thus life is not as frustrating if I realize that you're the one who's in charge and you have done certain things and that if you're doing certain things in my life, giving me, as Ecclesiastes talks about, different times and seasons in life and you've given me these things, I understand you're the one behind these things. You've got a purpose. You've got good in what you do. I mean, verse 8, he just simply says, Lord, here's my prayer I'm acknowledging my sin. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgression. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. He's admitting, I'm a sinful individual. Because of my sins, I can't accomplish what I should. I mean, sin is what gives us the shortness of life. Sin brought forth death. And he admits this. He goes, I'm a sinner. I understand this. And you're the one who can forgive and what I'm hoping I can do is that I can be a testimony to you with the life that I have. Look at verse number 8, how he describes that. He says, deliver me all the transgressions, make me not a reproach to the foolish. What he wants to do, and he's talking about the foolish there. These are people who live life without God. They don't care about God. They don't know God. They wander through life and do everything without God being there. And he just simply says, I don't want to be a reproach of people like that. I want to be someone who's magnified in their eyes that there, there's a difference. I'm not just merely going through life living like they are, going, life is short. I got to do whatever I can now. No, I don't want to be a reproach to the foolish. I want to be someone who's a testimony to the foolish. That there's more than just this life that is so short. There's more to it. There's a God that's a part of this. And so with that, as he, he declares, Lord, uh, don't make me reproach the foolish. He also asks this, uh, Verse 9, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth, because thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thy hand. What he's simply saying here, Lord, I know that I may have done some things worthy of my life being shortened, but give me mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. Uh, the stroke, the, the, the idea, the blows of punishment that are raining down upon me. Uh, 
Could we, could we take those away? Because I'm acknowledging the fact that I'm a sinful individual. I'm not what I should be. I'm not as perfect as I need to be. And I'm acknowledging that to you. Could the stroke of thy hand, the rebukes that you give, could this uh, be taken away from me? Because as you see in verse 11, when thou with thy rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. I mean, if you keep doing this, I am going to disappear. I'm not going to have any more time on earth. And what David is uh, desiring is that he has more time because he wants to be able to praise God. He wants to show what it's like to live with God as the center of life. I mean, he requests God to allow enjoyment in this life. You read verses 12 and 13. That's what he's saying. Hear my prayer, Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am stranger with thee, sojourner with my father's word. O spare me, that I may recover strength before I go thence. Lord, help me to be able to live life. You say, what do you mean by live life? Do the things that living people do. Go through life, and, and the parts of life are this, that a person eats, and they drink, and they go through the different things, and they work business, and they, they are part of enjoying certain things, and they build things, and all of these things. He's just simply saying, can I recover my strength to be able to live life before I am no more, so that I can be a testimony to who you are? That I can glorify you with the strength that I have, that people can see this. I mean, he recognizes the fact that this is not his permanent home. Verse 12, he says, I'm a sojourner as my fathers were. He's referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we talked about this morning. They lived in tents. They didn't have any permanent structure. And he just simply says, I recognize in life, though I may have a solid building that I live in a house, I'm, I'm a person that's just wandering through life and it's temporary. I acknowledge that. I'm not going to be here forever. I won't be here for uh, ever to be able to live. But the fact is, is as I go through this life, there is the opportunity to be a testimony. Desire of the psalmist is to enjoy the creation that God had given him to enjoy. And as you think about it, this really is the challenge of Ecclesiastes. If you want a book that talks about living life under the sun in a way that glorifies God. Read Ecclesiastes. Because as you read through Ecclesiastes, you find that Solomon, David's son, uh, gives a whole report on how to live life, and he just simply says, life is really frustrating. But throughout the passages, what you find is that he repeatedly comes back to the fact that a person should fear God. It does say, eat, drink, and be merry. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. You know, that sounds like, you know, uh, a very Epicurean lifestyle. But what he's saying is this, is that you live out life in the fear of God. And you go, what does the fear of God mean? That I'm walking around, you know, dodging uh, his uh, blows on me. Uh, the lightning bolt strikes. The answer is no. The fear of God is just simply, I live my life as if God truly exists. And that he is one that I'm eventually going to have to stand and give account to for how I lived my life. So 
I am given the things of this life to enjoy and to use and to be a part of uh, in this life, but I'm doing it with the understanding I'm going to have to give an account to God for this. How should I use these things? How should I do these things? What should I give myself to? Because God's the one that's given them to me, so I'm a steward of what he's given to me, especially the time. I mean, we're talking about the shortness of life. He's given me as a steward time. How do I use these things? Because one day I'm going to have to stand in the presence of God and give account. It's not going to change for a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not going to decide, well, okay, you're going to hell or this type of thing. No, but I am going to have to give an account on the gift that God gave me, how I used it. I mean, this is the, the cry at the end of Ecclesiastes as you go through Ecclesiastes. In the last part of it, it just simply talks about the fact that rejoice, O man, in the days of thy youth. Let thine heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth and walk in the ways of thine heart and not in the sight of thy eyes. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. He says, live life, especially as you're young. You've got strength. Live it full, but understand you're going to have to come before God for this. I mean, the final, I mean, the, the whole last part of Ecclesiastes is a challenge of a middle-aged or an older man to a younger generation that's coming up on how to live life, how to view it with the time that you have. But at the end of Ecclesiastes, even though he's talked about if you live life without God and you just kind of live for it, you're going to feel like it's really empty. But if you live life as if God's a part of it and you're going to stand before him one day and this, you're going to have to get rid of sin. That's what David's doing here. He's clearing out the sin saying, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. But you're going to live in a way that magnifies and glorifies God. But in the end, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13 makes this statement. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Okay, we've talked about life and the shortness of it sometimes and the opportunities in it. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, the responsibility of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Sounds very 2 Corinthians 5.9-ish. That we're going to have to one day give an account for those things that we've done, whether it be good or it says evil there in the Greek, it's the idea of worthless. It really wasn't something that we should have spent a whole lot of time on. Uh, in life. I mean, David here is giving pretty much the philosophy and the theology of Ecclesiastes that yes, life is short and it could be frustrating and sometimes people don't live as long as you expect them to and others that you don't expect to live very long live a whole lot, a lot of life and you're going, this really isn't fair. But what David does is he goes to the one that is the source of joy in life even when life is short, that when you focus on him, you'll find a joy and a happiness and a delight that you wouldn't have if you just said, oh no, my days are short here, and you're looking at this life as it being the only thing. A believer goes, there's this life, and I live my life here, and one day I've got to stand before God and I have a what? An eternity to live out, to enjoy. 
So I may be upset by the fact that this life is shorter than I expected it to be, but I ought to be an individual that goes, well, God's given me my life. However long he gives me, that's fine. I'll enjoy what he gives me, use it for his glory, not give myself to sin, and just do those things that God has laid out for me day in and day out, recognizing the fact that one day I will stand before him. And then we'll realize life was really short, but eternity is really, really long. And we'll be able to enjoy God's presence forever, even though life might be short, shorter than we want. But view it from a godly person's perspective, not the way the world would view life. Lord, we have some in this room that have enjoyed what the world would say, length of days. But even with that, life for them seems to be really short. We can all be frustrated by the fact that the things that we haven't been able to accomplish, things that we haven't been able to do, frustrated by the failures that we've had, especially in the area of sin. And there could be a frustration that life's too short. There's not enough uh, time for us to get everything accomplished that we think that we need to get done. But the fact is, the length of our life is what you give to us. The times and the seasons that we have are things that you've uh, laid out uh, for our uh, good. And however long we live, may we continuously come back to you, seek your face, and then live in a way that reflects a thankfulness and understanding that we're stewards of time that you give us. May we use our, our life uh, not in a way that uh, brings dishonor to your name and brings destruction to ourself, but live in a way that honors and glorifies you, is one that magnifies uh, and uh, shows forth your praise in the everyday uh, activities of life. May we be like that. May we not be frustrated as we can be sometimes when we begin to... Uh, just see our, our, our life shortening up on us and the abilities uh, disappearing. May we just find our hope and confidence in you and may we dwell on the fact that this life isn't it. That's why the world gets frustrated. They think shortness of life, this is it. But we have an eternity yet to live and enjoy beyond this life. So Lord, may we find our joy in knowing you, the one true God, and live this life in a way that pleases you, looking forward to life to come. And this we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.